Well, when was the last time darkness drove you to desperation? When was the last time darkness drove you to desperation where you needed help, you needed someone, you needed light, you needed something? If you have a driver's license, you've probably been there. You know the feeling. You're driving down the highway, going along at 55, 60 miles an hour, 65 maybe, depending on the speed limit, and a thunderstorm breaks out, a huge, powerful thunderstorm, and it becomes completely dark all around you, and the rain is just pounding on the windshield. And what do you do in that moment? You might become desperate. You might turn on your, your blinkers. You might pull over to the side to let the storm pass. Some of you, if you're honest, you keep heading right down the road. You're like, what's the problem? It's just rain. The speed limit's 55. Let's get it down the road. I won't tell you which, which one of those I am. But even if you're that person, there, there sometimes comes a point where even you become a little afraid. You, you can't see what's in front of you. You've been on a dark road at night when it seems like you can see nothing ahead of you. And there's this, there's this fear. There's this desperation that you need to be very, very careful. And our text for this morning gives us a warning, really. It gives us two sides of the same coin. It gives us a blessing that Jesus opens the eyes of the blind, but it also gives us a very dire warning. A warning against pride and self-righteousness and thinking that we are able to see on our own. He, Jesus wants to drive us to desperation on him. And if you are here this morning and you are an unbeliever, you need to know the desperation in which you find yourself. You need to know the desperate situation. You are in complete darkness without Christ, and without Him, you will die in your sins. And brothers and sisters, He wants to call us to a similar desperation in that although we have been saved by His grace, although our eyes have been opened, be careful lest you begin looking away from the One who gave you sight, the One who gave you life. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the One who has made you see our theme for this morning is that Jesus gives sight to the blind and he blinds those who think they see. And as we walk through this passage, I want us to consider first, the first heading, the purpose of the man's blindness in verses 1 through 7. And then we'll walk our way through and see different interrogation, different questionings from the Pharisees to this, this man who was born blind. And as we do so, we'll be able to see how this, this situation, this narrative is kind of a parable. It's a parable of Jesus who gives sight to the blind, but then also he's the light of the world who blinds those who think that they see. First notice this healing in verses 1 through 7, and particularly we see the purpose of the man's blindness. Jesus sees this man who is blind from birth and his disciples have a particular assumption. Teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, the assumption was either his parents sinned, they were maybe in sin in, in conceiving him, or they were in sin in some other way, or 
the baby in utero was somehow in sin. Who sinned that this man was born blind? He wasn't just born blind for no reason. They were drawing a direct line from a particular specific sinfulness to the specific case of his suffering. And Jesus responds, no, it's really option C. It's not A or B. It's neither of those things. Rather, it is that the works of God might be displayed in him or that the works of God might be revealed in him. We were already talking about these themes of light and darkness, of blindness and sight. And Jesus is saying, this man was born blind so that you might see the works of God, so that the works of God might be revealed in him. He's already opening the eyes of his disciples in a certain way. He's giving them a new perspective on suffering. We've seen this theme of Jesus being the light of the world also throughout John already. We saw it in John chapter 1. The light shone in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. We saw in chapter 8 Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light, life. And here Jesus is already shining as the light of the world, giving sight to the blind as it was foretold in the prophet Isaiah. He will release the captives. He will give sight to the blind. He will release those who are oppressed. This is Jesus, the Messiah who has come. And in giving sight to this man, he gives a new perspective to his disciples on suffering. Consider how this teaches us about suffering. It gives us a new perspective on our suffering. I remember when I was in the mountains of Connecticut one summer as a teenager, I was out with my friends. We were looking over the mountains, and we were looking up at the moon, and it was nice. It was beautiful. I was, I was like, wow, that's really great. Beautiful. And then I, something struck me, and I remembered my glasses were in the cabin. So I went into the cabin. I put on my glasses, and then I really saw clearly. It was more like, wow. I could see with a whole new crispness, a whole new beauty in what I had seen in the moon. All the details of the moon. I had a totally new perspective on what I was, I was just seeing. And here, Jesus gives us a new perspective on suffering. Consider how you view your own suffering. You view your own trials and difficulties. Whether it's something huge and major like a debilitating disease or life change or whether it's your ordinary trials from day to day. Do you see them merely as frustrations? Merely as things to be overcome or to get out of? Well, Jesus shows us here that God displays His glory through our sufferings. His desire, His aim is to display His works to reveal the works of God in our suffering. And how might that change us as we go through suffering? How, how might that change the way we see difficulties and challenges? It, we're told in other places of Scripture that God is using our sufferings to, to shape us, to change us. So that, uh, I believe it's Peter says, so that by the, the testing of our faith, its genuineness might be proved 
so resulting in the glory and honor and praise of Jesus Christ our Lord. What are you suffering through right now and how might that redound to the glory of God? How might he use that for his glory? We're reminded that a lack of suffering doesn't mean there's necessarily a lack of righteousness. Uh, a lack doesn't necessarily mean there is righteousness present in you, right? There are all kinds of unrighteous people who have great lives, who never suffer. And we're also reminded that suffering doesn't come directly from a particular sin, necessarily. We do know that from the fall... Adam and Eve, this is why we suffer. This is why there is death. This is why there is suffering in the world. But we need to be careful about drawing direct lines from particular sins to particular areas of suffering. Well, the man is healed, and he, he goes and he obeys what Jesus told him to do, and he comes back seeing what an amazing sign that Jesus is the Messiah. And now we, he starts encountering questions. His neighbors there's confusion among the neighbors. Is this the man who used to sit and beg? Is it not? He kept insisting, it is me, I am the man. They ask him how his eyes were opened. And notice the man says, this man named Jesus, he told me to do this. I did this and I came back seeing. I, I can see now. This is really the first interrogation we see verses 8 all the way through 17. First from the crowds, but then also from the Pharisees. Some from the crowd bring the Pharisees to him to begin questioning him. And so they begin questioning him, him as well. But they insist that they see clearly this man is not from God because he's breaking the Sabbath. It's, so, it's as clear as day, they say. He's breaking the Sabbath. This man cannot be from God. And yet, the man insists. I don't know how he does such signs. What I do know is once I was blind, but now I can see. There's a division among the people, and they ask the blind man again, who, who do you say that he is? Who, who is he? And now he says he's a prophet. Notice this, this is a sort of parable throughout this narrative. The man has been healed. He's been given sight. And now he's beginning to have clarity about who Jesus is. Little by little, he's starting to have more understanding about who Jesus is. First, he is the man called Jesus. And now he's willing to say a little bit more. He is actually, he's a prophet at least. We know that there's something different about this man because he has given me sight. But we'll, we'll, see, we'll continue to see how his eyes are being opened throughout this narrative. He's growing in understanding, but notice things get more intense in this second interrogation. This would be verses 18 through 34. The Pharisees interrogate his parents, and then they come back to the blind man again. They interview the parents, and they're insisting on asking them questions. Yet look at their response in verse 20. His parents answered, We know that this is our son. There's no disputing about this. He was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. In other words, get the pressure off of us. We don't want to have to deal with this. And John tells us the reason why they answered the way that they did. Verse 22, His parents said these things because they feared 
the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they had fear. The Jews had a certain control, a certain power over the religious and spiritual life of those Jews of the day. It's similar to how you might go to Romania. And the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Romanian Orthodox Church, has a certain power over those who are connected with the church. In fact, when I went on a mission trip, we did some medical missions there. And many of the people wouldn't come to the medical missions because the priest had said, if you go to these Baptist medical missions, we will not do your child's baptism. We will not do your marriage. We will not do your funeral rites. They held a certain power over those who were under them. In the, in the same way, these, these Pharisees insist, if you proclaim Jesus, Jesus to be the Christ, you will be cut off from the religious and spiritual activities, symbolizing, really, you'd be cut off from God. You'll be cast out from God Himself. There's this fear that they have. But the Pharisees do go back to the blind man and ask him for a second time. They say to him in verse 24, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, they see clearly, yet again, give glory to God. By this, they are meaning admit. Admit that this man is a sinner. Confess. Do what we want you to do. Give glory to God. Admit that he is a sinner. And yet he's not willing to. He knows that he has been changed. He, his eyes have been opened. They again ask him, how did he open your eyes? Notice this refrain throughout this narrative. How did it happen? How did he open your eyes? His parents say, we don't know how it happened. They say to him again, how did he open your eyes? And I love the blind man's response. Right? He, he gets a little sarcastic with him. You keep asking me, do you, you must want to become his disciples too, don't you? I, I would have loved to have seen their faces at that, wouldn't you? When those who are full of pride are brought down a notch or two. He gives his testimony once again, and he insists that this is a work of God. Look at what he says in verse 30. Why, this is an amazing thing. <laughs> In other words, you who are pressing, professing to see all and to see so clearly, you don't know that this man is from God? When's the last time someone has opened the eyes of someone born blind and you can't see that he is from God? Now, we might have to quibble with some of his argumentation in this passage, and yet he comes to right conclusions. Jesus, he insists, is from God, for no one can do this without the work of God, without God's approval, without God's work. Never has this happened before. Verse 33 is his conclusion. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So you have the main character in the story, starting with, this is a man called Jesus, and then he moves to, he is a prophet. And now he's moved to this man is from God. He recognizes, even though he was blind, he's 
gradually coming to see Jesus for who he is, and yet the Pharisees' blindness is being exposed. They're being exposed. How do they respond to this man? You were born in utter sin. You were born in complete sin. They can't stand to be rebuked. They can't stand for their blindness to be exposed. So they, too, are making the connection with his being born from birth to his own sin. And yet, he sees now, you're missing the point, Pharisees. But they are blind. And would you teach him? And they cast him out. In other words, they cast him out of the spiritual worship of God, symbolizing that they have the power to say who is in and who is out. Who is right with God and who is not. And they cast him out. While the blind man has seen and is gaining sight, the Pharisees are becoming blind. It's like they're, they're walking out of a matinee movie and the sun hits them and they cannot see. They are blinded to the truth of who Jesus is. Notice several ways that really they're blinded by their own commitment to Moses. They are blinded to their own commitment to the law. They say that they are disciples of Moses. We're not Jesus' disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Throughout John, we've seen Moses is connected with the law. And these Pharisees are connecting themselves with the law. We are disciples of Moses. In other words, we are the ones who keep the law and we are the ones who say who is doing a good job keeping it and who is not. And it is by this means that a person is right with God. They're blinded by their own self-righteousness, by their own commitment to Moses and the law. They're blinded in several ways. We see one, they're blinded to compassion. They just kick this man out because they say he's born in utter sin. They can't stand to be rebuked by him. They are born, they, they are blinded to compassion. These, while we look at these ways that these men are blinded, these are red flags for us too. If you are unable to have compassion on other people, that, that's a red flag that you are being blinded by your own self-righteousness, that you are demonstrating you're, you're becoming more of a disciple of Moses than you are of Jesus. People whose sin is different than yours. People who haven't, been, haven't had their sight open to who Jesus is. You have no compassion for them. And the reason they had no compassion is because they were blinded to their own sin. It's another red flag that you might be following the way of self-righteousness rather than the way of Jesus. If you're blinded to your own sin one test for this how do you respond to criticism even if it's not sinfulness necessarily how do you respond to mistakes that you've made how do you respond to things that you're not doing right or if someone comes to you and criticizes you in some way even if it's a helpful you know helpful motivation and you respond with a knee-jerk reaction no that is not me Being blinded to your sin doesn't just mean either that you don't see it, but maybe that you see it, but you don't really care to do anything about it. It's like having an 
a festering wound on your leg and you just cover it up and go about your day. That's blindness. That's real blindness. Blindness to your sin is a red flag that you're following the way of Moses and not the way of Jesus. And ultimately, their blindness to their sin caused these men to be blind to compassion because ultimately they were blind to who Jesus Christ was. They were blind. They were disciples of Moses when Moses is the one who wrote of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said this in chapter 5. If you believed Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote of me. If you knew the prophet Isaiah, you would know that the Messiah will come and he will give sight to the blind. He will be a light to the nations that the salvation of the Lord would extend to all the world. You would know these things. And yet you are blind to who I am. See, the Pharisees were blind to Jesus and as a result of their commitment to Moses and the law, they thought that access to God was through the temple and the religious activities and keeping of the law. They thought they were the mediators between man and God, and they're missing it. Jesus stands before them as the true path to God, as the one through whom you must go to access God and to gain his favor. As the mediator between man and God, the irony is they cut off this man for beginning to see that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus who was cut off from God for our sins. Jesus who was sacrificed for our sins. Jesus, our mediator. He has paid for our sins. It is through Jesus Christ, not through works of the law, not through self-righteousness, not through legalism, that we come to right relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, beware of this this pridefulness of self-righteousness and legalism. It's among religious people that this happens. Not only, but especially. Beware of this in your own hearts, brothers and sisters. But finally, we come to the final interrogation. Interrogation 3, look at verses 35 to 41. And I guess we, we could, I'm calling this an interrogation, and yet, in a sense, it's not an interrogation. The previous questions, all the questions that the Pharisees have been asking, have been in an attempt to seek to trap, to trap this man, or to trap his parents, to trap those involved. And this questioning seeks faith. Jesus, knowing that this man had been cast out of the synagogue, found him and asks him a simple question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? We're not sure if the man knew exactly what he meant, but the Son of Man here speaks not only to Jesus' divinity, but as the one who exercises judgment an eschatological judgment for the Lord himself, the Son of Man. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, again, notice the repetition of the questions. Mostly, there's been a couple of who's, but mostly it's been how. How has your sight been, how have you received your sight? How did they do this? How, how is it that you see now when you've been blind since 
birth, and now Jesus turns the question to who? Do you believe in me? Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man is ready to trust in him. Who is it that I may believe in him? And Jesus says to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. It's interesting, Jesus says, verse 37, you have seen him. I wonder, does he mean with physical eyes or does he mean with eyes of faith that he has come to see that Jesus is the Christ? He once saw him as the man called Jesus. He once saw him as a prophet. He once saw him as a man from God and now he sees him as the Son of Man, the Messiah, who has come into the world who would save him from his sins. You see, this is a parable, ultimately. A parable of giving sight to the blind and of blinding those who think they see. The work of God is displayed in this man not only by him gaining physical sight, but especially by him gaining spiritual sight into who Jesus Christ is. Jesus explains the lesson of the parable in verse 39. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Jesus is the light of the world that gives sight to the blind, and yet blinds those who think they see in their own self-righteousness. The sight that is given to this man, ultimately, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It took this man coming into contact with Jesus Christ. So many times, brothers and sisters, we ourselves can become distracted and our our gaze turns elsewhere rather than on the person and work of Jesus Christ for us. It may be like the Pharisees. We may turn our gaze to our own works of righteousness, to our own self-righteousness and what we think we are able to accomplish by ourselves. Often we can lose our gaze away from Jesus by focusing on good things, perhaps. On family and the needs there, on building our own reputation. We can lose our gaze on Jesus through emphases in other areas, politics, particular doctrines. What, What is the temptation for you, brother and sister? When you begin drifting your gaze away from Jesus. Yes, we who are in Christ have had our sight renewed. We once were blind. All of us, all of creation is blind. And yet Jesus, in his grace, has given us sight. And yet we must be careful that we don't lose sight of him. That we continue receiving him by the means of grace. By the preaching of his word. By the preaching of the gospel. By Jesus Christ who was cut off from God for the sake of his people. For you, brothers and sisters. Turn your eyes back to Jesus Christ that you might trust in him, that you might worship him. He has given you sight, brothers and sisters. You once were blind. You could not see for anything. You were in complete and utter darkness and sin, and he has saved you. This truth calls us to trust in Him, to worship Him, but also to share Him, does it not? 
Who, who do you know that is spiritually blind? They are in utter darkness. Will you have compassion on them? Will you have mercy on them? Praying that God might open their eyes? Seeking to befriend them and love them? Seeking to proclaim this light of the world who gives sight to the blind? You know what? Let's pray for a moment. And let's pray for those friends of ours who do not have the sight to see Jesus Christ. Let's pray for those friends, for those family, for those co-workers that God might open their eyes. Let's do that silently for one moment.